Now, people of God, open your Bibles, please, to the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel, and we will read together verse 45. This, in some way, is a conclusion to last week's sermon. We were able to mention a few things, important and essential things, about verse 45 last week, but we need to look at this verse um, on its own on this Sabbath morning. We will take a break from Mark's gospel uh, beginning this coming Lord's Day when we will begin to look at various passages relating to the birth of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, give to us a spirit of prayer and of supplication. Help us to learn how to be much with Thee in private in prayer. And help us and even our children to learn something about prayer from the public prayers that we offer on Lord's Day mornings and evenings. And as we come before our sovereign King in prayer this morning, it is with humility and reverence and a sense of awe, just as we have sung a moment ago, as we contemplate the cross. We know that soon we will be contemplating the birth of the Savior, but he was born in order that he might obey the law that we broke and that he might pay the penalty of our sins by shedding his blood on the cross. Rising from the dead, and we have a great high priest who now intercedes for us, and we have the promise of his return. We are thankful for these truths and these realities that the world scoffs at, the world thinks are foolish. But Father, we know that the foolish of God is of greater power, infinite power, compared to that foolishness of men, which will only lead to destruction. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come to this text, that hearts will be given the ability to have attention placed upon every segment of the verse, and that the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, will be extolled, that we may praise him together for what he came to do and what he accomplished and really did achieve. And we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. <clears throat> Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with and ending with verse 45. The word of the Lord. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now let me remind you, people of God, that we have come to that section of Matthew's Gospel in which we find the Savior deliberately moving toward Calvary. And following upon the third announcement of his passion, which was richer and more full than the other two, we now come to this, this verse in which you will remember that the context was one of service. How much like Philippians 2 is this passage? The Christian life is determined by our Savior's condescension and sacrifice. 
And as with Philippians 2, this passage also tells us much about what Christ came to accomplish. And that is why we focus alone on verse 45 this morning. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We begin with this first, Christ's self-description, Christ's self-description. The Son of Man, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man. That expression is used 14 times in Mark's Gospel. As we move through Mark's Gospel, I've often pointed out the significance of the Son of Man. The Greek probably should be read in an emphatic form. You see this here in your ESV. For even the Son of Man, or we might translate it, for the Son of Man himself came not to be served, but to serve. And this is a way of stressing the magnitude of the one who came. The Son of Man is the fulfillment of that title which we find in the prophecy of Daniel, the seventh chapter. Let me read those verses to you again. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus then is pointing to that passage when he references himself as the Son of Man, revealing his status using this title. Now Mark 8.38 is also very important as we think of the title Son of Man. Mark 8.38 says, for whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so the one who is the Son of Man is the Son of the Father. The point being that the Son of Man is the Son of God. And so Son of Man is a messianic title. The one who will come again at the end of the age is called the Son of Man. And he assumes in this title the suffering and the glory that brings in the kingdom of glory as found in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter, by divine inspiration, replied, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And so the Son of Man is the Son of God. Son of Man then stresses his deity and stresses his transcendent kingship. We should have a sense of awe as we move forward in this verse. When he calls himself the Son of Man, he's, it's not a throwaway. There's nothing like that in God's Word. It's there for the purpose of helping you to see the majesty, the greatness, the glory of the One who came to do what he says he did in this verse. What he came to accomplish, what he came to do, what he came to achieve. Let's look at the components of his achievement according to verse 45. 
For even the Son of Man came, came. What did he do? He came. This is the incarnation of our Lord, an historical fact based upon God's eternal plan and our need for atonement because of our awful breach of the law of God. When Thomas saw the risen Lord, he cried out, my Lord and my God, because only God come down to save us could atone for our sins and redeem us from the curse of the law. God was pleased that all of the fullness of the Godhead dwell in him bodily. The incarnation manifests his deity before our very eyes. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, meaning that I am of the same essence with the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, Christ was in the form, the morphe, the form of God. And that word means, or it implies, his deity was intrinsic to him. Hence, we find here infinite condescension. The Son of Man, the one who is the Son of God, came. He came down. He came infinitely down, 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 down to redeem us from our awful sins. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. God in counsel decreed this, that those chosen of the Father would be redeemed by the Son, and for that he came down. And considering who he was, considering his infinite riches, that condescension was indeed infinite condescension. My concern always as we move into this time of the year is that the incarnation of the Lord, that God, the second person of the Trinity, came in flesh in order to redeem us, that this becomes somehow commonplace among us when it should be anything but commonplace. We should always be filled with a sense of reverence and a sense of awe, a sense of the greatness of it, the magnitude of it, the miracle of it, should always fill our minds and our hearts as we consider that He came. For even the Son of Man came, and He came to serve. <laughs> he came to serve, did you hear? He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to be the servant of sinners. What, you might say? The Lord of glory, the infinite God, the second person of the Trinity came not to be served, but to serve? Yes. And behind this passage intentional on Jesus' part, undoubtedly, is that we think back to the book of Isaiah in which we find the suffering servant of Jehovah. 
behind this passage in Philippians 2 and other passages. The servant of sinners is the suffering servant of Jehovah. And you have four servant songs, beginning with chapters 42 through chapter 53 in the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 53, the suffering servant dies for the guilt of his people. You're familiar with those words. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, the servant dies for the guilt of his people, and that is what Jesus wants you to think, wants the disciples to think, as he utilizes the term and expression servant in this passage. He came as the servant of the Lord to serve you, his people, by dying for you and shedding his blood for you in fulfillment of the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53. And so, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve in this glorious and infinite way. He came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life. That's what the text says. By giving his life, the incarnate God gave his life, an infinitely valuable life, God in the flesh, and he gave his life, it tells us. And the very verb gave indicates immediately to us that it was a voluntary thing that he came to do. John 10, 11, 17, and 18, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this charge I receive from my Father. Or Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus would say? And we find it in Matthew's gospel in Gethsemane after the soldiers have come to take him. He says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? I voluntarily give my life. I could simply call upon my father who would send 12 legions of angels. I am going with them to the cross because I came for this very purpose as the suffering servant of Jehovah. It is voluntary. Believer, let it not be forgotten by you for a moment. 
that he gave himself for you. No one took his life. He gave his life for you. And don't fall into some kind of trap that I've heard some Christians think of through the years that somehow the father thrusts his son into this world as if the son must come and cause the father to love him and to love us in order that we might be redeemed by him. Oh no, the father loved a people and the son came to redeem those people. And the spirit of God will apply that work of the gospel to the hearts and lives of his people. It was completely voluntary that in the eternal counsel of God, it was determined that the son would come, willingly come and give himself up on the cross for you, believer. But we see another component. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. A ransom, it says in verse 45. This word lutron, as I pointed out last week, is a a term that you find often in the Old Testament. I will not repeat some of those times in the Old Testament, but it also was a common word that is found in the non-literary papyri. The non-literary everyday sorts of documents that have been found in the ancient world. In the common Greek of the day, this is the word that is used for the price paid for a slave to set him free. The purchase money for manumitting slaves. This is the term that Jesus used used in this passage, verse 45. And several points are to be made here. The word does not simply mean to deliver. The word means deliverance by the payment of a price. It was a ransom. The slave with the marketplace is to be envisioned. It's in the background. The buying and the setting free. Our sin required the payment of Jesus' blood because no other price would do. And this implies immediately that Jesus' sacrifice was a true substitution. A number of years ago, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield wrote a wonderful article in which he was dealing with this term redemption. And he said that the term redemption was being weakened by a vague idea of deliverance. We are, he said, assisting at the deathbed of a word. It is sad to witness the death of any worthy thing, even of a worthy word. But a worthy, but worthy, and worthy words do die like any other worthy thing if we do not take care of them. Even more regrettable, he said, is the dying out of the hearts of men of the things for which the words stand. Oh, my people of God, hear me as I underscore what Warfield is saying here that the very term redemption was coming out of the vocabulary of men. And when used, it was being vacated of its significance. People of God, it only takes one generation, and it happens incrementally. Cherish the very words that Scripture uses of the redeeming work of Christ. In words, the Lord has revealed our need and the only way to salvation. What is in a word? Everything with a word like redemption, everything. From heaven he came and sought her 
to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. That's what redemption means. A ransom, a lutron. But that's not all that Jesus said. He came to give his life a ransom for many. For many. It's right here in the verse. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And I'm one of the few that believe that the for many here is intended to stress the efficacy of the atonement, but I must preach it as I see it. A real substitution is the point here. He did not give his life a ransom for all without exception, but for the many for whom he shed his blood, and they shall be saved infallibly. Nor did he give his life for a few, but for what will amount to a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth. So we have here what we find in Romans chapter 5, the one giving his life for the many. Hence, it teaches an essential element about the atonement. The atonement accomplishes its purpose. Charles Spurgeon somewhere referred to the Arminian approach to the atonement as a very broad bridge, but it didn't go all the way across the river. The Calvinist or biblical viewpoint, said Spurgeon, is that there might be indeed a narrow bridge but it goes all the way across. That's the point here. The atonement accomplishes its purpose, and how could it not? Let me tell you why the atonement of Jesus Christ, the ransom of Christ, must accomplish its purpose. Why does not some sort of vague hypothetical thing but why it was particular, why he really died for his people, why those people must be saved by it. Let me give you these reasons. The atonement must accomplish its purpose because it was the eternal plan of the triune God. The Father loved a people, sent his Son who willingly came to die for those people, the Spirit of God applies that work to those whom the Father loved eternally and for whom the Father died. Any other view makes a muddle of the Trinity in this matter. The atonement accomplished its purpose because of who Jesus is. God become man, hence his infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value and therefore it must achieve the purpose for which he came as a ransom. The atonement must accomplish its purpose because Christ was the representative of his people and he represented you, believer, when he shed his blood on the cross. He is the last Adam, the head of the new humanity, of which we read in Romans 5, 12 through 21. The atonement must accomplish its purpose because his atonement was a real substitution. Not some kind of hypothetical substitution, a real substitution. And again, the preposition that is used here is the preposition ante, which is the preposition of substitution. It means instead of. It means in the place of. And so we read, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for 
in the place of, in the stead of many. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 moves your soul, doesn't it? Knowing that you are ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Revelation 5.9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Oh, my friends, the atonement of Christ must accomplish the purpose for which his blood was shed because of the value of his blood because it cannot be wasted. It is of infinite value. It must accomplish the purpose for which it was shed. The atonement must ransom those for whom his blood was shed because it was shed to redeem a people. You know, Judas Iscariot is in their midst, undoubtedly, as Jesus is speaking of these things. He was the son of perdition. He was not redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our great encouragement as believers is that we are actually redeemed by Christ who was our substitute and we ever shall be redeemed by the one who was our substitute. And his atonement must accomplish its purpose because the ransom price was paid to the Father. Tremble to think that the holiness of God determines the moral fabric of the universe and that atonement is the only way to salvation. But what glorious results. He hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Believer, your guilt and sin and iniquity was imputed to your Savior when he died for you and his perfect righteousness, his perfect record, when you believe, is imputed to your account. It is a particular redemption, a ransom paid to the Father. And let me give you another reason. That the atonement, the ransom price, must be effective. That those many for whom he died must be saved by the blood that he shed. And the reason for that is because on the cross, he died as our propitiation. That is to say, justice was completely satisfied when Jesus died on the cross. All that justice demanded of you and me and our guilt, all of that price was paid when Jesus, the propitiation for our sins, shed his blood when he died on the cross for those whom he would save. If the debt is paid for you, then you owe the debt no more. Once having believed in Christ, the atonement is applied 
to your heart and to your life in such a way that you owe the debt no more. That is the good news of the gospel. But there's another encouragement. As we think about the infinite value of the Son of God and the blood that He shed, the blood of Christ is sufficient to save the chief of sinners, the greatest sinner. Sufficient to pay the price. Sufficient to atone for sin. Sufficient to satisfy justice. Sufficient to justify in God's court of law. And sufficient even to purchase our sanctification. This is true for all who believe in Christ. Now, the Synod of Dort, one of our great ecumenical reform councils that met at Dortrecht in the Netherlands in 1618 and 1619, you know the five points of Calvinism. They developed as over against the five points of Arminianism. They simply said what the Bible says about this great matter of electing grace or atonement or perseverance or whatever it might be. And the Synod of Dort, affirming as firmly as one can imagine the particular nature of the atonement in the strongest terms, also affirmed this, and I quote Dort, the death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, absolutely sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. And they go on to say, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. This promise together with the command to repent and believe ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God out of his good pleasure sends the gospel. So I proclaim it today to you who are gathered here this morning, proclaiming the gospel promiscuously to all who have come under the hearing of the gospel this morning. I proclaim that there is an all-sufficient atonement that can meet the need of the vilest sinner who has sinned against God in the vilest of ways. That if you think your sin is too great to be pardoned or forgiven, you undervalue the significance of the blood of Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. No matter what your sin has been, and that guilt will be removed. I beseech you in God's stead, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Come to Him and trust in His redeeming blood. I think I could preach on this all day, but let me conclude it in some ways. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We've spent the whole morning unpacking what all of that means. Do you trust in the Savior who died for sinners? The one who said when He died for His people, Father, treat me like that sinner and treat Him like me. The price He paid, our assurance, is found right here. There's a, a line from a hymn that Spurgeon often quoted it. I've read it through the years. I've never been able to find the hymn. But the line I remember, it is at one tremendous draught of love, 
he drank damnation dry. That's what your Savior did when he went to the cross. At one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. And if Christ died for you, and the Spirit of God applies that work to your heart, you will be saved for time and for eternity. People of God, let me say to you, do not lose this truth. Do not cease to thrill in this truth, to love the one who gave himself for you on the cross. Do not lose this truth. One of the ways in which this truth and other truths can be lost is intellectual pride, but another is sheer neglect. If redemption through Christ's blood is seldom preached, it will be lost. Other things will take the space. I never will forget in reading Spurgeon's autobiography years ago that he told of a minister who sat in his vestry utterly, he said, utterly broken down, driven almost to despair, having no rest because he had followed all the modern theories and was preaching the current unbelief. And right there in the vestry with Spurgeon, he came back to simple faith in the atoning blood of Jesus. And Spurgeon said, if that minister were here, he would say, cling to your faith, brethren. If you once throw away your shield, you lay yourself open to imminent dangers and countless wounds, for nothing can protect you but the shield of faith. Oh, the evil that is done by false theology. I've seen it close up. Men say it's old-fashioned. Men say that it's irrelevant. Be willing to bear the scorn of the world for the blood of Christ, for the empty tomb, for the risen Lord. You people here be willing to bear the reproach of the one who redeemed you with his own blood. Because without the cross, we would be absolutely, and I mean absolutely in the absolute sense, without the cross, we would be absolutely desperate, lost for time and for eternity. And the doctrines of grace will never satisfy the pride of men, be willing to hold them because they're true, without being concerned that others will not come with you. I close with these magnificent words from Augustus Toplady, that 18th century preacher, hymn writer, the hymn Rock of Ages written by him. Toplady wrote these words, from whence this fear and unbelief hath not the father put to grief his spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and fully in my room endured the whole of wrath divine. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again 
at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. Amen. Amen.